everybody. Welcome to Clark Talk, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Katie Gillespie. And I'm Damien Pizzanti. So we have kind of a nerdy show for you today. Oh, not even kind of. It's so nerdy. <laughs> We're going to geek out on landslides and the uh, geography of uh, southwest Washington and the gorge because it's nuts. Um, super active. I feel like our conversation with this scientist we're going to speak with, like we we were pretty. Uh, I want to say we took a very academic approach in our talk, uh-huh. but man, there is like this is just such a dynamic, actively moving landscape beneath our feet. So we're going to dive into what that means. Yeah, we're going to talk about landslides in the Columbia Gorge and what that means for homeowners, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's pretty good. It's a good conversation. So very meaty. Very meaty. Yeah. Um, And then uh, we are going to introduce you to Rachel Pinsky, who is the Colombian's new food writer. Uh, She runs the food and drink column every week. Um, Yeah. She's not our food reviewer. She's not our food critic. No. So she's actually a fairly new voice in the paper. But, man, I have really enjoyed her work so far. So it was fun talking to her about the changing food scene and the, I would say, the blossoming food scene in Vancouver. Yeah, totally. So we'll hear a little bit from her. And then, as, um, as always, we'll have Ashley come. In, talk about the weekend ahead and yeah how you can get outside and things to do all right okay so let's go to our interview with tom all right so um now i don't know if you guys you guys are probably aware if you've been in southwest washington this winter but there's been a lot of landslides uh cropping up here and there this season and even though we're starting to get into spring supposedly i thought it'd be a good time to bring in somebody who knows quite a bit about this subject. And so now we are sitting down with yeah. Tom Pearson, and you are a um, research hydrologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory in Vancouver, right? That's correct. And and my, my title uh, kind of uh, bridges the gap between hydrology and geology, because really we mostly focus on the geologic aspects of volcanoes, but um, Part of that uh, has to do with landslides, and sometimes we get involved with landslides that aren't actually on volcanoes. And in this case, uh, my our most recent work was in the gorge. But in that case, we're dealing with volcanic deposits from very old volcanoes that have long since eroded away. Huh. So yeah, that's how you and I met, right? You had, um, correct me if I'm not remembering this right, but I, I did this story about you actually last November. That's correct. And. Um, so you had taken this project up in your free time to scan uh, or to examine the landslide history throughout the gorge. Is that right? And just even on just one side of it, the Washington side. Yeah, well, Am I remembering so, that right? Right. And it, it, it was not actually my free time per se, but it, it was an unfunded project. So, you know, when I wasn't working on some of the other projects that I was, uh, I needed to be focusing on I, when I had some extra time. Uh, we did some work there, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we were following up on some landslides that, uh, well, one particular landslide that occurred back in 2007, uh, just outside of Stevenson, Washington, and we got a request to uh, follow up on that. So, um, I don't know how many people listening to this might remember, but that landslide, that was really heavily publicized, right? Because there was like a house um, up on this, I think it was a bluff, and then mm-hmm. like literally the guy's yard started falling away and the house was just doomed to go with it at one point, right? It was, and, and it, was, it, was a hard, it was a hard story because um, neighbors banded together to help this guy out and uh, they actually moved the house to the far up 
uphill end of the property to try, you know, hopefully to save the house. Uh -huh. But the landslide kept uh, chewing back into the hillside oh, and eventually got the house anyway. That is heartbreaking. So before we dig into the uh, the research project that you did, can we talk a little bit, as much as you can ta feel comfortable talking about, uh, uh, talk about just the, the how vulnerable our area is to landslides. Is it a real problem in southwest Washington and in the Portland metro area? Landslides are a very real hazard in, in any place where you've got rain and you've got slopes. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you cut into that to see what's going on, some, some soils and some rock units that make up the ground underneath you know, buildings and homes and streets, uh, some of that ground is stronger than other kinds of ground. So there are some fine details that geologists often look at to try to figure that out. But yeah, basically anytime you've got a slope and you've got water that can percolate into the ground, that water can loosen and actually uh, not exactly float the material off the, off the surface, but it, it produces pressure down at the base of, of a, a block of terrain. Hmm. And that pressure can actually reduce the friction and induce sliding. Man, if anybody owns property next to any like steep slopes, this would be a very good time of year to assess your property because your homeowner's insurance doesn't cover landslides, which I had learned just recently. That is correct. The, <laughs> the only place you can get uh, landslide insurance is through Lloyd's of London as a specific policy. Lloyd's, really? Yeah, and it's very, very expensive. So, uh, and, <laughs> and, and most people don't know about it. Yeah, so if, if you just have a homeowner's policy and you think you're covered for landslides or any sort of earth movement, you're, you're not really, unless, unless there's some special deal that the, the insurance company has with Lloyd's. Wow. Um, you know, maybe it's just because I'm in, in the news business and it was uh, so it's my job to pay attention to these things, but it felt like there was a ton of them this year, a ton of slides. There's at least two I can think of on I on the I-5 outside of town. There was two on the railroad tracks. I did a story about some people on the Salmon Creek uh, Greenway with their houses up on a hill up there, and like they're dealing with a huge landslide behind their property that's been going on for a few years now. So it's like, God, just everywhere I look lately, the hills are moving. It's been a very wet winter, and... Uh and that definitely plays into it. Mm -hmm. um, the rate at which the rain falls is, is often very critical as well. Now, if, if you're dealing with shallow soils and shallow landslides, uh, storms that produce a lot of rain really fast are usually the most worrisome and, mm. and, the, and what can do the most damage because those can really trigger these shallow landslides that sometimes turn into debris flows or, or mud flows which can really take off and go down slope. Um, but on a winter like this where we didn't have any really big storms per se, but it was just so constant, mm -hmm. uh, that is often uh, a problem for the deeper landslides because all of that water is seeping down into the ground and building up uh, a, a saturation zone at depth, which then can, can trigger more movement of these bigger slides. Mm -hmm. So uh, what spurred your interest in this topic? Well, I, I've uh, all of my professional work has been in, as you said, geomorphology, and, and mm -hmm. um, part of my PhD dissertation was uh, with studying landslides on the Oregon Coast Range. So I've I've wow. always been interested in slides and, and what they can do to the landscape and mm -hmm. uh, 
And then when I started working for the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, how we, we use our understanding of these natural processes to uh, predict uh, hazards for people has mm -hmm. become you know, of greater interest to me and, and how we can get messages out to folks mm -hmm. about things they can do to avoid some of these natural hazards. So aside from the aside from the fact that we have a lot of rain, uh, just, you know, that's a very real feature of life in Pacific Northwest, is there anything about the landscape itself that makes it particularly vulnerable to, vulnerable to this? Or is it, uh, are we not... Uh, or is the risk not necessarily any greater here than it is somewhere else where it happens to rain a lot? It, it, it really varies from site to site and, and, uh, and places you wouldn't think of as, as being vulnerable to landslides can, can have a lot of landslides. And, you know, places in the Midwest, for example, uh, you know, bluffs overlooking mm. rivers, uh, for example, uh, mm -hmm. often will uh, slide. Um, you know, the, the Oso slide that occurred... Uh, a little over a year ago, up mm -hmm. in uh, on the Stillaguam, North Fork Stillaguamish River, mm -hmm. uh, that was that was not a big, huge mountainside. That was just a bluff that was a few hundred feet higher than the valley floor, mm. and, and the whole bluff gave way. So, what we think of as as what looks dangerous may not be as dangerous, and what looks uh, somewhat benign might actually pose a greater risk. Sure, but it's highly variable. And that seems like a great time to segue into this. I'm oh, sorry. This this project that uh, you and a couple of colleagues did uh, in the gorge. Remind me. Tell me if I'm remembering this right. But you guys used lidar scans to look at where all these historical slides were, and just in like what was it about 80 square miles on the Washington side? Is that is my yeah, remembering that right? That that would be about the right area. Um, yeah, LIDAR is this amazing new technology that's, that's been around for a little over a decade now. Uh, but it, it does use pulses of, li of uh, laser light mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it basically um, get blitzed down onto the land surface and then the... So it's like an airplane literally flies over and yeah. shoots lasers all across the landscape, right? It shoots these pulses, individual pulses of laser light, and, and then it, it, uh, it records the reflections of those mm -hmm. and it can even go through trees and through dirt and uh, it can go down to the surface of the landscape yeah right? well each each pulse uh, mm -hmm. will get reflected off whatever it hits but they they really hit the ground with so many of these pulses millions of these pulses mm. that some of them will get through all of the foliage and get down to the bare ground wow and so uh, depending on whether you look at the first reflections to come back or the last reflections to come back, you're looking at different things. Mm. If you if you if the computer processing focuses only on those last reflections, then you're looking at essentially a picture of the bare ground and all of all of the trees essentially disappear, the buildings disappear, mm. and you, we get an unprecedented view of the ground surface. I would imagine that dr that drones are probably kind of a, an exciting development in your field as well. The possibility to just send a little drone in and and take scans. Of we're you know we're still looking at various ways to use drones and and, and yeah they're definitely a, a, a great possibility for doing new and exciting things. Cool. Good. Sure. Um, so tell me how you guys used lidar to so uh, to backtrack a little bit. Your interest got 
picked by that uh, that really sad story of that guy's house in 2007. Right. And so from there, you guys used land or used lidar to do some scans of the gorge, and then the analysis went from there. Can you well the, explain the lidar? How it all the lidar had just been flown. Uh, by Washington State Department of Natural Resources. And so that had just become available a few years prior. Mm -hmm. and, but nobody had yet used it to look at, in detail at where the slides might be on this heavily forested you know, north shore of the Columbia River in the Western Gorge. And, and we knew that there were slides there, and some studies had, had mapped a few slides but uh, what, what we found is that there were so many more slides than people thought. Only, only six landslides had been mapped, and we found 215 as, as, a, minimum, as a minimum number. As a minimum? As a minimum. There, wow. there, were, there were older features that were all eroded, and we just couldn't for sure say if it was a landslide, but you know, 80 or 90% chance that it was, but mm -hmm. because we couldn't be sure, we didn't put it on the map. And cor correct me if I'm wrong, but um, this was this study confirmed that whole uh, that oral history of the Bridge of the Gods that was talked about through, that has been passed around through uh, Native American traditions, right? Like you guys were actually able to see that landslide that went and blocked the Columbia. Well, we we knew about that landslide we knew before about our study. Yeah, okay. that that and that one has been pretty well studied. Uh, in fact, it was extremely well studied when the Corps of Engineers. Uh, needed to put in Bonneville Dam back in the 1930s. And, and so they went in and, and they had some very good geologists who studied it. They drilled um, cores into the ground and, and got a three-dimensional view of the landslide. So wow. we, we knew a lot about uh, the Bonneville landslide. What we didn't know is how old it was, mm. for sure, until fairly recently with uh, uh, some work uh, done by some colleagues, primarily um, uh, uh, professor up at Centralia College, uh, Pat Pringle, who's been been really interested in dating that slide and collecting logs. In fact, interesting story there, um, there was an old log that came out of that landslide that was preserved at the Forestry Center. Like a, log, like actual tree a, as log? As a huge tree log, and it was a tree wow. that was, that was uh, buried in the landslide, and it was such an amazing big log that it was preserved. Uh, at the Forestry Center in over in Portland, and uh, he was able to get a sample of that from the Forestry Center and and do some tree ring analysis on it. And, oh, that's awesome! And actually, uh, in addition to the tree ring, they actually took little samples at different points within, uh, going from center to the outside, and got mm -hmm. radiocarbon dates. And so, using the combination of tree ring and radiocarbon dating, mm -hmm. they were able to to uh, pinpoint the age of that Bonneville landslide. Wow. to about uh, the um, first half of the uh, 15th century. So somewhere between 1420 wow. and about 1447, I believe. Huh. That's amazing. So yeah. you guys looked at a relatively small area and saw a history of hundreds of slides. It sounds like they were literally just one over the top of another. How are you able to tell what was a landslide and what was just maybe like a... Uh, you know, something was flushed downstream from like the river moving or something like that. Yeah. Well, landslides have some really um, obvious characteristics that you can see on aerial photographs or in this case on LIDAR. Uh, very distinct features that really there's almost no other way you can get them. And um, 
a, a, a landscape that does not have landslides tends to be fairly smooth and all your features have to do with the creeks and streams that drain the slopes. And everything is kind of a, a dendritic pattern, sort of a forked pattern of little streams working their way upstream, and they have tributaries, and everything's kind of smooth and orderly. Sure. But as soon as you get landslides coming in, everything gets all hummocky, and you get these sharp, uh, what they call scarps, which are these uh, cliffs at the heads of landslides where the, where the earth breaks away from the hillside. Mm. You get these really steep slopes and then at the base they form these toes and flatter areas in the middle and, and plus the ground is all um, all broken up, all very irregular topography. Mm. And uh, the thing with, with the LIDAR is that we could see this so much better with the trees you know, effectively removed than, than could be seen with the traditional air photos because air photos, all you see is trees. Right, right. And so that was a disadvantage that the early geologists had is that they couldn't really see the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and we were the first ones who really could because we had the LIDAR. Um, I want to read um, a, a little bit out of your story here, Damien. Um, you, you're talking about the the one of these landslides. Um, a little upriver of the Bonneville Dam, it's more than half a mile wide and just under five square miles um, in area, and has slid southeast toward the Columbia River at a rate of about a foot per year over the last several decades. The Bonneville Power Administration has transmission towers near the slide, but Pearson said they haven't been moved. Um, in an email, BPA spokesman Kevin Wingert said, we have an active program that monitors a number of trans transmission towers for movement associated with slow-moving landslides. And when warranted, we go in and fix or move the structure. It sounds like there's almost kind of like an implied warning there from you guys that that these that, that there are transmission towers in the way of this slow-moving landslide that, that, that are going to have to be fixed. Am I interpreting that? No, we, yeah, we're just reporting that, that you know, this, this is a slide that is moving, uh, and this particular one is called the Crescent Lake Landslide. Uh, and uh, we, we've, we've got data on the movement from several different sources. So we're very confident that it is moving. And it, and it moves just in the wintertime. It's one of these ones that is, creeps uh, you know, some, up to about a foot a year uh, and then stops entirely in the summertime. And, and, uh, and Bonneville Power knows about it. The, the, uh, the Williams Northwest Pipeline Company knows about it because yeah, the, there's a pipeline right at the toe of this thing as well, is. isn't there? It is, and they have to adjust. They have to uh, relieve the stress on that pipeline on a periodic basis so wow. that everything keeps When you say relieve going. the stress, what does that mean? As I understand it, they have to uh, dig alongside the pipeline over about a mile of its length and, wow. and, and let it... Uh, kind of move back into position hmm. because the toe of the slide keeps wanting to push it down slope. Hmm. I think that was the most fascinating thing I got out of doing this story was that that landscape is still very dynamic. Like there's a lot of movement at least on the Washington side of it still. There is. And and the and the there are landslides on the Oregon side too, but they tend to be different type of landslides and and that is because of the geology. The rock units are the same on both sides of the river. But, when you say rock units. You know, the different um, types of rock that mm-hmm. are laid down. Um, and, and it's a combination of lava flows, old lava flows, and old river sediments. Mm. Now, the uh, lava flows lie on top of the old river sediments, but the whole package has been tilted toward the river. Um, 
somewhere between 2 and 10 degrees, depending on exactly where you are in the gorge. That's on the Washington side it's tilted like that? The whole, the whole region has been tilted. Oh, the whole region. Okay. But on the Washington side, that tilt aims everything down at the gorge. Oh. Uh, on, the, on the Oregon side, that tilt goes into the hillside. So it hmm. tends to want to stabilize things along those potential failure surfaces. Interesting. And, and, and the layers between some of these sediment uh, units um, have clay in them, and that clay is fairly weak. So what we tend to see on the Washington side is these uh, failure planes or these slip surfaces that are uh, parallel to the, the surfaces on which these materials were laid down, and they tilt toward the river. And then the gorge comes, or the river comes along, carves out the toe of these slopes, mm -hmm. you know, takes away some of the support for these slopes, mm -hmm. and it, it kind of triggers everything wanting to slide toward the river. Wow. I feel like you can even see this further upriver in the gorge or some of those hillsides that are at a very pronounced, very clean angle angling right down to the river. Yeah, yeah, they are. But the, the, the angles vary depending on where you are in the gorge a lot. Oh, I bet you're reaching for it. Um, yeah, that's certainly true. So what I'm hearing is it's like, it's like rock on top of sediment and soft materials on top of rock and things like that. And then you add a little bit of, add some angle and some water to it. And that's just a recipe for things to be falling all of the time. That's exactly right. Now, the, 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 the lava rock on top we call the Columbia River basalt. And these are really, really thick uh, layers of very hard basalt volcanic rock. Mm -hmm. um, on the Oregon side, the, that is what forms the almost vertical cliffs that we see. And, and it produces all the beautiful waterfalls on the Oregon side because we've got these very, very steep cliffs. Mm -hmm. But that, that rock also has uh, fractures in it. Uh, we call them joints, mm -hmm. which tend to be perpendicular to their upper surfaces. And those, those uh, joints uh, are weak zones also. And so some of that basalt also can form landslides hmm. uh, because of these weak zones. Wow, wow. So if I'm driving down Highway 14, should I be freaked out that I'm going to get caught up in a landslide somewhere? Uh, in, in general, no. Although, if, if it's raining cats and dogs and you're driving on Highway 14, I would keep an eye out for trees that could be tipping over and boulders that could be rolling down, because that definitely happens. Uh, you know, Highway 14 was closed, uh, I would say, several, a couple dozen times this winter because of these small little rock falls and things that dumped out onto the road. Right, right. Um, so is there going to be any more research continuing up in the gorge uh, beyond this, or are they going to, and you, I want to emphasize again, you guys just looked at the Washington side. Is there going to be any work on the Oregon side or uh, further up the gorge or anything like that? Is this work going to continue somehow? It, it is going to continue. Um, uh, the Washington, uh, Washington Department of Natural Resources, uh, in which is now the Washington Geological Survey, and they have a new landslide program. Mm. And um, staff from that program are going to be continuing the mapping on the Washington side. Uh, Oregon uh, Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, we call DOGAMI, mm -hmm. uh, that also has a That's landslide. That's a good acronym. Yeah. <laughs> they also have a landslide mapping program, a really good one. Huh. And uh, I suspect that those guys will be getting at some of the slides on the Oregon side before too long, too. Hmm. Gotcha. I saw that uh, DNR just re released a, 
um, a new online map, I guess a new online mapping system. And I've had an just a great time looking at those because you know they've made all their lidar scans public, yeah. and so I've seen some just super cool photos uh, or like uh, I guess maps, not photos, but shots of like Mount St. Helens uh, just all in lidar and yeah. like parts of the gorge in lidar mm -hmm. and just to see the landscape stripped of all those trees and just down to the rock surface and being able to see like the movement of the rivers over time the landslides that have happened the flows that have happened it's amazing it is amazing and that's uh, you know it's so cool that it's now being being made available online both in Washington and Oregon mm -hmm. uh, Dogami also has a LIDAR portal on their website so oh, you, cool. can, you can get at it on that side too yeah and you can see just amazing stuff you really can mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's really I mean, I'm probably being a little bit too like grandiose about this but I feel like you can see like a history uh, like a, the geologic history of this area it's like a history of the earth that is not there to the naked eye. Well, what we could see in our landslide study, we could literally see one slide cutting across the boundaries of another slide, and that slide having cut across the boundaries of an even older slide. So we could we could see these multiple generations of landslides mm -hmm. uh, all in one spot based on the cross-cutting relationships of their features. Was it a surprise to find as many as you guys did? It was. It was. We 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 knew there were landslides there. Um, you know, in our study area, um, I think you said it was about 80 square miles. We work in square kilometers, so I don't remember. I don't remember the numbers in square miles. But um, yeah, about two thirds of the whole area is landslides. God, that's crazy. And and about a quarter of those landslides uh, have occurred in the last thousand years or less mm -hmm. and uh, about 12 of them at least a minimum of 12 that we could identify are actively moving now or, wow. or have been just in in the last few years wow that's crazy huh i just keep thinking of all those people that live out there and there's roads on them there's probably houses on top of old slides and maybe even moving ones right now i mean yeah i don't know how i don't think anybody i don't think anybody had the you know knowledge to uh, um, when they built those little communities, had the knowledge to or to see really like how the ground was shifting beneath their feet in some cases. Well, that's right, and and a lot of these slides are stable currently, uh, and people did build. Uh, there there are a lot of homes and businesses and roads and infrastructure built on these old landslides. Um, the advantage of knowing about that now is that people can you know you can be a little extra careful, because there are things people can do to to keep the ground from moving again. Uh, old landslides tend to be more susceptible to movement than ground that has never moved before. So if you know you're living on an old landslide, that means you should be extra cautious. And ways you can be extra cautious is to uh, just basically keep the water off that ground as much as possible, or at least not concentrate it any more than the rain does anyway. Mm -hmm. Ways you can do that is uh, don't let downspouts from roofs or a runoff from parking lots and that sort of thing. Don't let that sink into the ground right there. Try to get that through pipes or, or conduits in some way into streams directly rather than letting it soak in the ground. It's crazy to think, but something as simple as a downspout off your roof could contribute to your house sliding down a hill. Yeah, yeah, it can. And, and uh, if, if you have a break in a sewer line or a water line and you don't know about that, and that, that can really soak the ground 
quite oh, yeah. badly in a, in a pinpoint location. And that can make all the difference. That could actually trigger a landslide that could take out your house. Wow. That's wild. Um, so, yeah, good advice for homeowners. Know your property. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the other thing is, uh, you know, the, the, the surface of the, of the earth has formed its shape and, and its slopes under natural processes. But we, we have these tools, you know, we have these uh, track hose and uh, front end loaders and back hose and all these things that can go in and can mess with these slopes. We, yeah, yeah. We, can, we can carve stuff out. And often what people will do, they buy a piece of property that's uh, on a, even a fairly gentle slope. And they say, oh, well, I want to build something here, so I'll come in with my machine and I'll excavate, you know, I'll excavate a nice flat surface to put a building. Well, if, if you do that, you're taking away the toe of the slope that's above that. And in some cases, that's enough to actually trigger sliding on the slope that's above. So uh, whenever people are thinking about excavating on on slopes uh, it's always a good idea to get a engineering geologist uh, in to take a look at it to do an evaluation mm. and to be able to say you know whether it's safe to do or not gotcha well thanks a lot for coming on tom i appreciate oh, your time you're welcome all right, so we are sitting down with Rachel Pinsky, who is the Colombian's uh, new f new food writer. She's got a weekly column called Food and Drink in the Weekend section. So thanks for coming on, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so tell us a little bit about how you got started writing about food. What's your background? Well, actually, my background, if you go way back, I was a lawyer, and then I moved I'm here and I'm not licensed and I decided to go back to something I did when I was younger which is writing but another thing I noticed when I moved to Vancouver is there's a lot of food and drink a lot of good stuff to eat and drink in Vancouver and I was interested in just writing about it um, so a friend of mine that used to work at the Columbian um, knew John Hill the online editor at that time and mm -hmm. said you know you should he's always looking for somebody to blog why don't you contact them and see if you could write a food blog so I did that I had a food blog here um, called Vancouver Eater mm -hmm. I did that for a while and then as I kind of started um, covering food and drink I realized there's a lot of stuff and that if I started a website I'd have a little bit more I could play around with in terms of um, you know make organizing the information have and a playing control, around yeah. with the um the medium because you know online you have a lot of things you could play around with so right. i thought about doing a website and i happened to at the time um randomly contact the online editor from north bank now magazine monica spikerman to see if i could write for her and they didn't have a job, but I met with her, and she also wanted to start a food website. So we started that about a year ago. It's called Food Coover. Cool. So I did that, and I said, you know, we set up all the social media, the Instagram, Twitter. We have a Facebook page. And then um, about a month ago, um, my editor, my online editor, John Hill, was promoted to the Metro Desk, and... Um, he con I congratulated him and then we met for lunch I met with him and Mark Bowder the other uh, Metro Desk editor and they offered me the position um, writing for the weekend cool section Great. because um, Corks and Forks the woman that wrote Corks and Forks yeah Vicky moved on yeah mm -hmm. so they had a page and so I was very surprised but they offered it to me and um, so I've been writing 
about a month or so. Yeah. And do, are you still doing the Food Coover website or? Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to put it all together. I mean, my focus has been on writing my Colombian articles because um, I'm trying to really um, work on my writing skills and my interviewing skills and organizing the article. So I've really focused on that. I still have my social media. I still post to the Instagram um, Food Coover Instagram and the Facebook page. So I'm still doing pictures, but the writing um, has been tapered off. My a focus bit. has been on writing my articles for the Colombian. I've been enjoying your work because I feel like it brings some nuance to like the food scene in Vancouver, and it you seem to bring much more to your articles than just here is this tasty dish at this restaurant, eat it, and it's good the end and here's how much it costs uh so can you talk to us a little bit about like your approach with the type of writing that you want to do and how you wanted to talk about these offerings within the city oh okay well thanks for saying you like my writing team and i appreciate that <laughs> i mean it's nice to get positive input from readers because i'm not writing hard news i'm not covering a presidential election i mean part of what i'm doing is entertainment i mean there's the information part i obviously want to have the articles educate people teach them have them learn something about the places that I've gone but it also um I'm allowed to entertain too which is kind of fun um so I I'm inspired by kind of the writers at the New York Times and I like the um food writers at the London Guardian and so I religiously kind of read their work to kind of find inspiration and kind of up my writing game and um, in terms of finding things to write about, I just kind of roam around a lot and I follow a lot of social media. Um, Visit Vancouver USA is really good about kind of saying what's opening. The Colombian usually has information in the business section about restaurants opening. I also just drive around a lot and see like, oh, what's that? And um, so we live in Uptown Village. And one of the things that um, that we really enjoy being able to do is, you know, there's there's three or four bars that we really like going to. Well, two primarily, but, you know, Trapdoor and Thirsty Sasquatch. And what I love about those places is they've developed such a good relationship with the nearby um, the nearby food trucks, businesses. Um, Doomsday has the same thing going on up there where you can go to the food cart that's parked next door, or you can go to the grilled cheese window that's, that's in the same building as Trapdoor and grab yourself some dinner and take it back to the bar. So you're kind of hitting these, or you know, Vancouver Pizza Company will deliver pizza over to, to thirsty Sasquatch so it's it's interesting that there's kind of been this development of like community around food and around restaurants and you're kind of getting like a two-for-one almost at some of these places that you're going to so well I think that's a brilliant model because a lot of the brewers don't want to make food you know they want to make beer that's what they're good at that's what they want to do and so they've um, reached out to food trucks into local businesses and I think that's a great model because not only are you getting from people what they like to make most but you also are given some variety like when you go to trap door you can get, like you were saying you could get grilled cheese you could get Thai food you can get tacos um, so I think that's a really good model and um, I don't know yeah we might we'll probably see a little bit more of that as well but um, I think that some places are starting to have kitchens as well in-house but I think both are very good the other thing that you were saying about community is that the brewers um, so I've been 
educating myself about beer and meeting with a lot of people making beer, there seems to be a real tight community. They help each other out. It's not, you know, if somebody's missing something, they'll bring it over and help them out. Um, and the food trucks as well seem to have like a pretty tight knit community. So I think those two groups of people have kind of like fused together. And I think it's a really good outcome for the customer because you're getting the best of what they have to offer. You know, I think the one thing I really wish Vancouver had more of is uh, some like, I guess more restaurants like mixed into like mixed into its neighborhoods in the middle part of town. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Katie, you are totally spoiled living uptown where you're literally yes. blocks away from dozens of places. But if you're in like the middle of those like you know 1960s built subdivisions over by I don't know Andreessen or uh, Mill Plain or something like that, it's like you you pretty much have to drive to any of them. I think we're seeing a little more neighborhood. I mean, Mount Tabor opened in Philida. Am I pronouncing it? They opened in Philida. So I think they're starting to be a sense of like, oh, let's look around and see how many houses are here. And I think as um, we see more places opening in as downtown and uptown get saturated, there's going to be a little bit more of... You think they're going to get pushed into those... I think so. I think it's tricky, though, because there was um, a place called Commonwealth Cafe, which was like my favorite place in the whole world. And it was um, in a neighborhood. And I think it was hard for them to get the business that you would get in some of the more obvious areas of the Mm -hmm. city. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's going to take some time. Um, But, you know, the mill has taken off and that's kind of in a neighbor. That was kind of a no man's land. The mill. The mill is Mill Plain in like Garrison. That's where um, Smokehouse Provisions is and Raleigh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ben's Bottle Shop. That's a great subdivision. Or I mean, a great strip mall. It wasn't like a few years ago. Never in my life have I said that sentence. Now everybody's heard it. It's out there. Yes, yes. I'm on the record saying it. But yeah, there's some great offerings in there. So I don't want to like, like pin you to the wall or anything like that. But is there any uh, any types of stories that you want to explore that readers might want to keep an eye out for in the next few weeks? Well, I'd like to say I'm always open to read. I love when readers write me. I've been getting emails fairly regularly from people with tips. I love tips of like little places that I wouldn't have found um, and ideas for stories. Uh, one of the things I was interested in is downtown lunch, which I was talking about. I think that would be an interesting piece because I think there's a lot of people working downtown that would like to know what, what they could get quickly. Um, um, in terms of other stories, let me think. What am I? Um, I mean, I love food trucks, so I think you're going to see some food truck stories because, I don't know, I think a lot of good stuff comes out of the food trucks because mm-hmm. it allow somebody to really start out because there's like a lower overhead than opening a brick and mortar um and you gotta cover beer you know i mean this is there's beer everywhere there's lots of good beer it's really good and um once you kind of are meet a few people it's really they're all kind of connected but they all are doing their own thing and they have good stories i mean for the most part what i've seen is that they all start out as home brewers, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting because I'm sure there's a lot of readers that are home brewers that kind of want to see how other people decided to move to the next level. Um, 
And also, I think it's interesting too. Um, every every brewery has kind of um, a style that they're going for, or mm-hmm. certain things that they like. Um, Where are some of your favorite places to eat right now? Well, I just and so in a couple weeks, there's going to be um, an article about Mount Tabor mm-hmm. um, Pub in Philadelphia. That place is really good. The beer, the food, um, the space. I mean, I think that is the best place I've been to in a while. Wow. I really was impressed. The food is really, everything's really good. I would recommend And that's the one out. that's in that little, um, like, mixed development, Talk about right? Strip mall. There's yeah, a- <laughs> there's a bar three. Cool. There's a coffee shop. I mean, it, and it's kind of a drive from Vancouver, but I th- and if you go happy hour or dinner, expect to wait because it's very popular right now. But I, I think that place is really good. I also like Hopworks. Um, the one that opened in another really random area. Um, yeah, totally. I got an assignment from North Bank. I also, before this, I was freelancing for North Bank Now magazine, and I was assigned to go cover the opening of that place. And when I got the address, I'm like, where is this? It's way out there, it's right? It's like in the no man's land between 164th and 192nd on Mill Plain. I'm like, yeah. why? What? But but I think um, there's some creativity in local location for some places because there are I mean this there's Clark County's big Vancouver's really big there's mm-hmm. a lot of places where you could set up that area out there just seems like it's poised for growth like when we when I went out there I went out there for the first time and I think the only time so far just a couple of weeks ago and it seems like I could just see so many houses filling in in that empty space around it that it feels like it's going to be there for uh, it's it's going to be one of those like anchor places that pl- everything grows around. It's very busy. I mean, yeah, it's very it's you know. I mean, despite a location that may not have worked for other places, I mean, mm-hmm. it's very it's doing very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing that, like I said, there's a lot of Vietnamese. There's a lot of pho places, mm-hmm. and then like Fourth Plain has a lot of small like taquerias, and mm-hmm. um, there's a Thai place that I've heard is really good. So there's a lot of areas of um even just vancouver to explore but then mm-hmm. if you look at clark county um there's a lot of, washugal has some really good places our bar in washugal is one of the best places hmm. in the county do, do you think there's a difference in uh, do you tend to see more one kind of restaurant on let's say like the west side of vancouver as opposed to the kinds you might run into on the east side of town well um I think Vancouver, it's kind of, I don't, I don't see like. I think it's pretty well distributed. I think you see kind of the same thing. Um, I don't really see a high concentration of one thing or another in any particular city. I think Vancouver gotcha. is pretty spread out in terms of, there's just a lot of stuff to cover in terms of food and drinks. So I'm constantly yeah. like trying to keep track of what is going on. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I think we covered everything. Yeah, Do you think totally. we did? Yeah, man, we. Yeah, we did definitely cover just about everything. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading more of your stories. Oh, thank I've you. I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. It's definitely well, it's, a fresh voice for the paper. It's really fun to write these articles, and it's really fun to be able to um, – well, it's an honor to write for the Colombian because if you travel around, there aren't that many papers like this paper anymore, unfortunately. Um, so it's a great – honor to write for the Colombian but also to be able to go and ask people questions and it's your job to do so mm-hmm. um, I think it's fun so I'm glad you're mm-hmm. enjoying it and um, and as I said I always like input from readers or if you have any 
tips. I'm sure. always looking for new places. Well, you ever want to come on here and tell us about great places we've got to go see or like give us a rundown of the best pizza or burger or whatever joints, please come on. I'd love to. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so we've got uh, Ashley is back to uh, share with us. Last week wasn't a total disaster, by the way. With oh, you it gone. wasn't? Yeah. <laughs> no, to I think both of our uh, surprises, we did much better than we did the first go around. Oh, good. I yeah. was worried for you. I think you would have been proud. I think you would have been <laughs> proud, but still wasn't as good without you. Mm-hmm. So what have we got coming up this weekend? It is such a busy weekend. Yeah, like, I suppose. It is the perfect combination of many events with nice weather, so... It is, yes. it is finally spring, and it is finally May, and there's so many things to enjoy with it. Uh, starting on Friday, since it is First Friday, there's a bunch of activities happening in downtown Vancouver and downtown Camas. Camas is throwing a Nomen Ferry Gala. As one does. <laughs> As one does. this time of year. It's true. So there, there'll be lots of like crazy things going on, um, but uh, including uh, the Camas Liberty Theater is showing Labyrinth. So, oh, rad. Yeah. <laughs> Dave's is part of the first Friday event, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Definitely. So, from five to eight, there'll be tons of events. And then, starting at 8 p.m., you can catch the labyrinth for about $6. And then, there's tons of other activities like gnomes and fairies hiding around downtown cool. um, at businesses. So, it's a lot of fun. And then, Vancouver does its first Friday art walk. And it's kind of interesting because this will be um, North Bank Artist Gallery's last uh, show. Um, oh, before they close. Yeah, so this is kind of a chance to reminisce and see all the different artists who came through North Bank and, and kind of really feel where, where the Vancouver art scene is going. And there's a lot of other cool exhibits at the different galleries. I know um, the Fort Vancouver, sorry, the WSU Vancouver um, Creative Art design students are doing like a sound exhibition so so it's a bunch of um at divine consign they're doing a bunch of instead of kind of having a visual art thing it's it's all about how sound evokes different settings and things cool yeah so it sounds really interesting definitely worth checking out from five to nine friday go go crazy and then um Starting tomorrow, actually, if people are unaware, it's the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland. Mm-hmm. So a hundred or so local national comics would be descending on the city, doing a bunch of different like podcasts and comedy shows and just stand up different venues across um, Portland. Definitely worth checking out if you're into to funny folks. Um, <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> actually, you're a funny folk. <laughs> um and i I don't know it it it, this is their 10th year doing it and then in there and it's always kind of a funny thing to see who comes to the shows and and who they manage to get i know jerry seinfeld is playing at like the schnitz on saturday and there's just a lot of like comedic wait jerry seinfeld's playing in town yeah you're just gonna casually slip in like yeah i know jerry seinfeld yeah (laughs) yeah exactly well because like i said it's just it's a good weekend for comedy there's a lot of stuff happening going on starting tomorrow people don't know this they probably had their heads under a rock but portland has a very good comedy Mm -hmm. scene yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah super rock star so yeah this weekend's kind of a celebration of all that and definitely worth checking out and um shows are pretty cheap from like five to 35 dollars depending and then we get into to event intensive saturday (laughs) may 6th is just filled with fun things to do um it it kicks off with uh right around clark county which is a big basically bicycle tour de force of clark county you can go for um like an 18 mile 
journey, or you can go for a century, which is 100 miles, and it kind of takes you through all the corners of Clark County on your bike. Um, it's it's a really fun event. It's been going on for um, many years now, and it all kicks off from Clark College near Hannah Hall. Um, you can register the day of until about 10 a.m. for the, the smaller rides. Um, so if you haven't gotten your bicycle out this, this year, it might be a good excuse to do so. Um, registration's about 25 to $45 and uh, $15 for teens and free for kids 12 and under. Um, and then there's also the walk run for the animals, which kicks off from Esther Short Park Saturday morning uh, with a 9 a.m. start. You can register the day of. Um, you and your dog can go and help support the Humane Society. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the cat rapper Mosho will also be making a, an appearance. Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> So the cats aren't left out, too. And it's just a big fundraiser for the Humane Society. Um, it's I think 100% of the proceeds go back, go, goes back to the helping um, animals in Clark County. And it's about 50 to 55 to register for the uh, either walking or running. And there's a bunch of vendors and animal things uh, in Estershort Park during that morning. So definitely fun to check out. Um, Ridgefield is going spring crazy. They're having a huge spring festival, including a maypole dance um, in Overlook Park. Their farmer's market's kicking off. They're doing a bunch of spring activities. Um, That'll be really fun. And that's from about 8 to 4. There will be art shows and plant sales and just so many. I don't know. The city just always celebrates on first Saturday. And it'll even be a, a celebration of the anniversary of the first Saturdays. So... So it's a little meta. <laughs> it's very meta. God, these guys really find the reasons to be happy and celebrate. I know. Richfield seems like such a happy place. Mm-hmm. Deep down inside, they're all miserable, I'm sure. <laughs> just, like <laughs> just like the like rest, rest of, of us. <laughs> yes. Just like the rest of us. And then if you need an excuse to feel like you're in Hawaii for a little bit, um, the May Day Arts and Crafts Festival will be at Clark College on Saturday. So it's May Day is Lay Day, as in Lay the Flower Lays. Oh, I was really wondering when the uh, Hawaiian connection was going to come in here. Yeah, so uh, the local um, Keikuki Foundation, Keikuki, I I should not put that in because I cannot (laughs) say it. Um, But anyway, uh, it's an annual festival that just kind of celebrates spring and flowers and Hawaiian crafts. There'll be shaped ice. Um, There'll be hula hula dancers and kind of a a presentation of the Hawaiian Islands and it's a really fun cultural festival and it's from 10 to 6 on Saturday at Geyser Hall in Clark College. Admission is 5 to $7 free for 10 and younger. I mean shaved ice lay making contests it's all it's all good. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh and Saturday is also free comic book day. Free comic book day. Yeah. What do you mean free comic book day? Well, it's where does one get a free comic book? I like comics in downtown Vancouver. Oh, gotcha. They're celebrating. It's a national thing, so it, as a way to kind of um, remind people that independent comics shops still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, the different comic book makers give away free comic books. So if you go to one of the shops, you get a free comic book. They range in different ages and different genres. Um, and then I Like Comics is also bringing in a bunch of artists and creators of different comic books um, to kind of, you know, meet and greet during the day. So the whole day runs from nine to, or from ten to seven, and the comic book creators will be there from about ten to four. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I like comics. 
Yeah, so it's, if you've been out of the genre or if you're a fan of the genre, you can kind of immerse yourself in it. Cool. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Oh, there's always, always way, way, way too much. Yeah? yeah? Where could we find out more about those things? Always pick up your weekend section in the Friday paper. Not the weekday section, but no. the weekend the section? The weekend oh, section. okay. Um, I'm a little could... intimidated by the number of things you said that are going on this weekend. Yeah. Go to I Like Comics. Go and get a comic book and then go on a bike ride. Yeah. It's a good weekend. Get some Hawaiian shaved ice. Those are a lot of my favorite things. So. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ashley. No problem. All right, that's our show. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you guys for sitting through that and geeking out with me. I love that story. I just thought that I thought that whole idea of this moving landscape is so fascinating. Yeah, it is. I love natural history. It's just mind blowing. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> yeah. If you guys haven't looked into it, you need to look into that uh, paper that was just published on Gobegli Tepe. Oh, I That's going to blow this. your mind. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. So a couple weeks ago. Um, couple weeks last week last week when? we had uh marissa harshman in to talk about her piece of yes, our, yes. My, of the early childhood um education story regarding daycare my piece runs this sunday so oh um, i'm really yeah. glad you gave us the update on that yeah so, so finally yours done is going to be talking about kindergarten readiness yes what right? is kindergarten readiness what are the challenges in our community um and then i go to a couple of schools fruit valley community learning center and um prune hill elementary school and i talk a little bit about the uh uh, the the differences between those. I love the dynamic between Fruit Valley and Prune Hill. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, that's, Me too. You, could, you literally couldn't have made that up. I know. So um, good because Fruit Valley had the um, had had the fewest number of its kids coming in kindergarten ready. Prune Hill had the most kids coming in kindergarten mm-hmm. ready. So um, and there's 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 some systemic issues that we talk about um, that, that give some indication as to why. And mm-hmm. so some of the challenges that those schools face. And, um, and so anyway, it's a, um, it's an, I think it's a good story. I've been hearing about it for weeks and I can't wait to read it. Yeah. I've been working on it for a long, long time. So, mm-hmm. um, so that'll be out on Sunday. So check that out. You guys, what's the name of that series? Uh, early years early years the yeah. early years mm-hmm. yeah so check that out and the online version of that story is going to have um, some some data on where individual schools lie and where oh, cool. the demographic groups within those so people will actually lie. be able to look up so you see. can look up your elementary school your child's elementary school and see how many kids were kindergarten ready and based on how many boys were kindergarten ready how many girls were kindergarten ready how many Hispanic kids were kindergarten ready how many white kids were kindergarten ready so, so. Th- and the thing with this story is it's not necessarily like the school the school is not at fault if no the kids don't no come and ready, like right 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 it points more to to um some systemic community issues that that lend themselves to kids being kindergarten ready versus not kindergarten ready did they have access to high quality preschool um was was did mom and dad both work were they raised by a single mother you know were they are mm. they low income are they high income so there's some some bigger issues at play here than than the school so i'm really excited for this old man moment i'm about to have so just just brace yourself okay. for it but when i was that age being kindergarten <laughs> ready meant having a box of crayons right no totally it totally did <laughs> now so. it means something entirely totally. different so God, there's a lot of pressure on parents these days. There are, Good there Lord. are. I know. Hence why I do not want children. So no, absolutely not. <laughs> I can't take care of myself, let alone another human being. <laughs> no, I, I can't even be work ready. Like that's no. hard enough for me. Read that story and 
uh, be informed. Um, so you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes, um, and anywhere you're finding podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, it's, podcast is posted Wednesday evenings, but you can find it on the Columbians homepage on Thursdays. Yeah. Please tell your friends and your family and shout Clark Talks from the Hills. Because if you guys like this show, we hope that other people you know will like it as well. And we would love them to hear it. Yes. So anyway, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.